0: To our fifth lesson this morning, going through uh, the this, this study in the attributes of God. Uh, remember, two weeks ago, set the rest of them on the back, just if people come in late. Um, two weeks ago, we dealt with the fact that God is infinite and eternal. Combine that into one lesson. Normally, the order that's traditional is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. But remember, we did unchangeable first in those incommunicable attributes. And so we're coming now to the next section of the attributes of God that we often refer to as the communicable attributes. And so just a reminder and refresher for us all here, we often divide the attributes of God into these two categories of communicable and incommunicable attributes. The incommunicable are attributes that we just say are attributes not communicated to the creature. They are attributes that are true only of God. And so this is what we've dealt with so far, really, in our study, what we refer to, first of all, as the aseity of God, the fact that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. God has no creator. Elise, Audrey is looking for you. She wants your attention. (laughs) The fact that God is self-existent, self-sufficient. No one created God. No one sustains God. Nobody holds Him up. Nobody takes care of Him. He completely takes care of Himself. He is sufficient completely in Himself. He has need of nothing outside of Himself that's something that is only and can only be true of God because we are entirely dependent on things outside of ourselves. You cannot live without oxygen. You have oxygen that is outside of yourself. God has no need of any of those sorts of things. And then we dealt with the fact that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, those other uh, attributes that are true of only God. Well, the communicable attributes are those things that are true of God, definitely. They are true of God to an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable degree. But yet they are also attributes that in creation our being created in the image of God. God has communicated to us, to to those in his image. So we have these attributes to a limited degree. We don't have them to the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable degree that God does, but yet we do. And so as we learn of these attributes, we learn what is true of God, well, we, in a quest for godliness, in a quest for Christ-likeness, we want to emulate these attributes as much as the Holy Spirit enables us to do so. So we're looking today at the wisdom of God, and we're just going to follow really the order that is in question four of the catechism. Uh, And so today, wisdom. We've already dealt with being. Uh, That is the self-existence of God. So we come to wisdom. Now, as you'll see in this first paragraph of your notes here, if we just cut to the chase, what we learn is that God in His wisdom always does the very best thing in the very best way. That, if If we can summarize everything that the Bible has to say about the wisdom of God, it is that in His providence... He does the very best thing in the very best way. That's ultimately the manifestation of God's wisdom. But let me read to you. You can follow along in the notes here. Let me read you this definition of wisdom that is given by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Tozer writes this, Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end, that's supposed to be from, the beginning, so there is no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. So, We read that and we can understand what that means. We take, for example, ourselves as parents, just just to try to illustrate this. As parents, we, I hope, are wiser than our children. Your child may come to you with an idea. Mom, Dad, I want to do this. And they, they tell you their plan. And as they tell you the plan, You immediately realize, that's a stupid plan. (laughs) That will never work, right? Because you're older, you've been there, you've done that, and when you were their age, you had the same stupid plan, and you know this doesn't work. And you understand things in the process that they don't understand. You understand the end of where this is going to lead that they don't understand. And you, from a much wiser perspective, are able to see way more clearly than they are the end from the beginning. And you understand more of all the parts in the middle. And you, as a wise parent, you try to instruct your child as to what the situation is and what the process is and why what you have explained is not going to work out the way you think it is. And so we get that to, to a degree and you see the Lord has given to us a measure of wisdom. Uh, and even we as adults, we, we, I hope you as an adult have someone in your back pocket that you know when I face something that I don't understand, I know somebody that's wiser than me. And one of the marks of, of true wisdom is to understand when you need help. And so, you know... I've told people many times, I'm 45 years old. I still call my mom because my mom's way wiser than me. I, Lydia and I still as a couple, uh, there have been many times we call my parents. We go to her parents, her mom now. Hey, this is the situation. These are what we perceive to be our options. What do you think about this? Right? And, and you run things by someone that is wiser than you. Well, with God, there is no one wiser than him. And so he doesn't appeal to anyone. He is uh, infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably wise. But that wisdom is perfect. He has no guessing or conjecture, as uh, Tozer puts it here. Everything for him is in sharp focus. He knows the beginning and the end. He knows everything in the middle. He knows it all. So his wisdom is, is perfect. And so we have some illustrations of this in Scripture. Um, just if we consider the word wisdom as at its foundation, the word wisdom in Scripture has the idea of skill or understanding. So uh, turn up Exodus chapter 31. Let's look at this passage. I reference it here in your notes, but I don't have that one written out. When we get to some of the proofs here in a moment, I've got those Written for you, but let's look at Exodus 31. When the Lord gave the instructions for the building of the temple, He set aside a particular man named Bezaleel. And so let's uh, start in verse number one, Exodus 31, verse one. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, "See, I have called by name Bezaleel." the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And I... Behold, I have given with him Abaliah, the son of uh, As- Asimic of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise hearted I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. So we have there the illustration, the example of the Lord setting aside this particular man for the construction of all the stuff in the temple. Uh, when God gave the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant and all the things that had to be made of gold and brass, the laver, the table of showbread that was made of wood, the golden candlestick that was formed out of one solid piece of gold, etc. These children of Israel had just come from Egypt and they were very good at making bricks but that's what they made was bricks and They didn't do these other things. This is my opinion. You take it for what it's worth. Um, I'm happy to understand that Bezalel had never touched gold or brass or silver in his life. And by sheer miracle of knowledge, God, by a miracle, enabled Bezalel to do all of these things that he had never had experience in doing before I'm happy for that interpretation if you want to say that Bezalel's dad worked in gold and his grandpa worked in gold and this craft had been passed down from generation and the Lord chose him out and just helped him understand and did a better job I'm fine with that too Um, but I'm happy to see it even from the perspective of sheer miracle that the Lord imparted this wisdom and understanding to Bezalel But that's my opinion for what it's worth. But the Bible uses wisdom to speak of God's wisdom as opposed to the wisdom of this world. Uh, There are, in the scriptures, you might recall, um, Nebuchadnezzar had a group of men in his court referred to as wise men. Um, Pharaoh had those in his court that the Bible refers to as wise men. Uh, You remember there were, uh, at Christmas, the three wise men who came to Herod, and that's the way we refer to those. Now, that is a different concept in Scripture. That wisdom, the wisdom of this world, when we see that term used for the ungodly, these men were astrologers, astronomers, soothsayers, magicians. We're not talking about the same thing as the wisdom of God. When we see wisdom applied to God, especially, and we, when we see wisdom applied to those that are followers of God, in the Scriptures it carries with it moral overtones. You can take, for example, in the book of Proverbs. If you study the book of Proverbs, you'll find this to be very consistent when wisdom is used in Proverbs, a wise man described in Proverbs is a regenerate man. In Proverbs, the foolish one is one who is unregenerate, and it makes that, that distinction and that comparison. But God in his wisdom is perfect in wisdom. So let's look at some, of, uh, some key passages here. Turn to Psalm 104. I have these written for you in your notes, so you can read it here. We're not going to necessarily uh, pursue much context uh, other than just these main key verses uh, for our point here. Psalm 104, verse 24. Here, the psalmist is saying, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all, the earth is full of thy riches. So, here, what the psalmist is reflecting on is God's work of creation. And he stops in the verse to recognize the sheer quantity and the sheer quality of those works, that all that God has done, he has done in wisdom. And remember, the link that I made earlier with Bezalel and how the word wisdom is used in Scripture, it is most often used from the perspective of skill and understanding. Um, Some have defined wisdom simply as the right use of knowledge. Uh, We can look at, you know, you take some liberal college professor, he might have a bunch of knowledge, he might be able to list out a bunch of facts about a subject, but outside of the context of God and a worldview that factors God into everything, a fear of God, we would be wrong to say that he has wisdom. He merely has knowledge. He doesn't use his knowledge correctly. His knowledge does not lead him to right godly conclusions. And so wisdom is the right and appropriate use of knowledge. Well, God in wisdom has created all that there is. He has perfectly formed and fashioned all things. You think just as an illustration here of your own body. Uh, You were designed with infinite wisdom. And we can invite our creation scientist friends to explain these things in much more detail than uh, I am able to do. But most of you know, for example, if you don't have a big toe, then we're told, I'm told, that you're not able to run. I've never met anybody, I don't think, that has had their big toe amputated, but I've been told that without your big toe, you cannot run. So God has correctly, wisely uh, designed our bodies with that particular feature. Uh, Without the arch in your foot, you're not able to jump. Um, Without your thumb, it would be quite difficult to pick up a glass if you didn't have an opposable thumb to use. And then we can get into the, the systems of the body and how our different body systems work and how God has designed all of these things in great wisdom. You think of other aspects of God's creation, how God in wisdom designed different animals to do different things, insects and etc. A spider to spin a web, and it seems as if silk just infinitely comes out of this spider and creates the web to catch its food. Or uh, one of the things I think is crazy a Venus flytrap uh, that is a carnivorous. Plant that will catch uh, a fly or some other insect and dissolve it. Or the way that God has created uh, the, the woodpecker uh, that is able to hammer with such force into a tree and then it has a tongue that goes over its skull and is super long and can stick way far. The way that God has organized and created all these things is it's unbelievable? It, it it defies our understanding, but yet God in His wisdom has done all of these things. Let's look at another one: Ephesians one verse eight, and this speaks. This is a verse that speaks of God's dealings with us directly. Ephesians one eight, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, um. Andrew, do you have ESV? What? Okay, what's the word prudence? In the New King James. Oh, you don't have your Bible open. That's okay. That's right, we're reading it here. Does anybody have an ESV? It's not ESV, but it uses the word understanding. Wisdom and understanding instead of the word prudence. Yeah. So the reason I asked how some of the other translations put that particular word is because in Greek, the word wisdom and the word prudence are in what we call the same semantic class. Insight, wisdom, and insight. Okay, so the ESV the has taken that word and translated as insight instead of prudence. Well, I, I, I say that and I ask that because in Greek, these words are in what we call the same semantic class. You ladies that are doing your book study now and um, you're looking up a lot of words and paying attention to things. So if this is one of your verses, if this were one of your verses, then those words wisdom and that word prudence would be words that you, I hope, would look up. Have any of you ladies used Thayer's lexicon? Does any that make sense? Thayer's lexicon? Sometimes Thayer's lexicon will organize words and and put to call them synonyms is not the right thing to say, but it communicates more than any other way I know to communicate it. They are not exactly synonyms, like we think of the word synonyms. But the word wisdom and the word prudence in Greek are in the same semantic class. So what I mean by that is they are in the same vocabulary list. So when you talk about wisdom and you, you start pulling out, for lack of a better word, the synonyms that go with wisdom, in Greek, the word that is translated for prudence, it has to be on your list, right? The, these words go together. They're, they're not... This is hard to explain simply. They are two different things, but they're not two different things. They're the same thing enough. So wisdom and prudence. So what I'm saying here, verse 7, let's turn to Ephesians 1. Let's just look at all this so we can see what we're talking about. Ephesians 1. So look at verse 7. Let's get some context here. We need this. So verse 8, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. The wherein is, is the word that's important here. So verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And it is according to the riches of his grace that he has abounded toward us. You see that connection? It's according to the riches of His grace that He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And so God deals with us in a wise way, especially when we understand the gospel. God has devised a plan in the gospel in His wisdom that no man would have come up with. He's devised a way that His own law is completely and fully satisfied, and yet believers are not condemned. So that Paul can say that God is just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. If God forgave our sins in the gospel, if he forgave our sins and just said, I speak as a fool here, but just said, in essence, yes, you sinned, but I'm going to forget about it and just forgive you anyway and let you into heaven, then God would not be just. Because God has said that he must punish sin. And so our sin cannot just simply be swept under the rug, hidden a closet someplace, like a little kid, you know, trying to clean their bedroom. That's not the way God deals with our sin at all. God has punished your sin. Your sin has, the the payment for your sin has been completely made in Christ. And so the law that condemns, that law has been satisfied by the work of Christ. And so God is just in that he has punished your sin. Christ is the one that took that punishment. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And if we can add to a verse to help us understand, we've been made the righteousness of God in him who knew no righteousness. We don't have any personal righteousness of our own. The righteousness that we have is that righteousness that's been imputed to us by God through Christ. So God's plan to send Christ, his only begotten son, to pay the penalty For those that have broken his law and impute to them Christ's righteousness is a plan that is wise. Adam and Eve didn't think of that. Adam and Eve instead decided we're going to go hide ourselves and sow fig leaves together. That was their plan. That was a dumb plan. It didn't work. God, though, came and said, I'm going to send a seed of the woman. He is going to crush the head of the serpent and ultimately provide redemption uh, for sin. Let's move on to the next one, Romans eleven thirty three. 33 Here we have the psalmist, I'm sorry the psalmist, Paul um, really just crying out in amazement as it were at the wisdom of God. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways, past finding out. So it's impossible for us mortal men to plumb the depths of God's wisdom. We can try to define it, as we're trying to do, uh, but yet it is beyond our abilities. First Corinthians one twenty-four. But unto them which are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And I put this verse in here just to remind us always along the way that when we talk about the attributes of God, we are not limited in our understanding simply to God the Father. Uh, What is true of God the Father in these attributes is also true of Christ the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so here this verse in 1 Corinthians 1, identifies Christ as the manifestation of the wisdom of God. He he is the one who teaches us and communicates to us God's wisdom. And then there's three doxologies that are used that emphasize wisdom to to God, only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever, Romans 16. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then Jude 1.25, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and ever. So these doxologies, there are other passages that emphasize the same thing. The fact that Ultimately, God is the one who is wise in that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in that wisdom. So, in the last couple minutes we have here, let's look at some points of application. I put uh, a couple here. So, A, if God, in his wisdom, has planned everything for his glory and... If you are his child, he's planned it for your good. Then why should you complain and be discontent with your circumstances? Anytime we fight against the circumstances that we have, you are in essence, though you're too spiritual to say it exactly this way, but you are in essence saying, God, you messed up. You should have done it this way. Well, how foolish does that even sound, right? None of us would say it that way. But that is, in essence, what we're communicating. Uh, What is happening to you other than what God has allowed to happen? Well, if God has brought it, God is always doing the very best thing in the very best way. And we've acknowledged this in this class, and Pastor Kimbrough has acknowledged this, we were free to acknowledge this. I don't understand that. And neither do you. And don't pretend, you know, it's foolish for any of us to pretend that we do understand it. But we know what has to be true from Scripture. If it is happening, then, as our Catechism puts it, God hath foreordained what? Whatsoever comes to pass. Now, for us as Christians, we're the ones that have trouble with that. The unbeliever doesn't have a problem with that because they have discounted and they've cast God off of the schedule anyway. And so from their perspective, whatever happens, happens just surely by chance. And if something bad, bad happens, then that's to be expected because God's not powerful enough to stop it anyway. And so that's, that's just, they don't have a problem with this truth. We as Christians are the ones that have a problem with this truth. We're the ones that have to defend God. We have to give an apology for God. Why do bad things happen to good people, right? We've heard that saying so many times. And it's a valid question for us to seek to answer because it is the challenge, it is the answer of the unbeliever. That question is not a lot different than what the psalmist deals with when the psalmist talks about the heathen saying, wherefore is now your God? Where is your God? You claim to be the servant of this one that's high and holy and all powerful and mighty, but yet look what's happening to you. Where's your God now? How's your God helping you now? Well, what answer do we have to this? Well, we do face circumstances that are very, very difficult. We face Believers face things that are horrible circumstances. There were those in Hebrews 11 that were cut in half. They were sawn asunder. How can we say that God was wise in allowing whoever that guy was, most believe it to be Isaiah, but how do we say that God was wise in allowing one of his servants to be sawn asunder? That doesn't seem very smart to me. Well, we understand that God is always doing things for his own glory and for the good of his people. And there's a sense in which we just have to stop talking. I've talked about this from the perspective of the Trinity. There's times that we we try to explain the Trinity, and we we can say this sentence, and this sentence, and this sentence, and so far we're orthodox. Everything lines up with Scripture. We're orthodox, we're orthodox. And the next sentence that we perceive to be the logical conclusion from this last sentence we just said, okay, now we're heretics. Right? You, you, there's a point in which you, have, you just have to stop talking and you can't say anymore because we don't have the answers. We don't have the answers. And so what do we come back to? We come back to the fact that God is good. We'll be studying that later. God is good. We understand that to be true from Scripture. We understand that God is wise. We understand that. Infinite, eternally, and unchangeably so, He's wise. And so if we ever come to this conclusion that God has messed up, then we have to stop because we understand God has not messed up. God has not done anything that is unwise He he always does the very best possible thing that can be done. He does it in the best possible way that it can be done. And according to the most perfect timing that it could be accomplished. His wisdom is unwavering. He has done it right. And so as believers, we fall back on that truth and that promise, and we accept and we glory in what God has done a second point of application God has told us in the scriptures that if we are to be wise the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom if we want to pursue the wisdom of God if we want to be wise in our dealings then we fear the Lord God has promised to give wisdom if any man lack wisdom Let him ask of God, and God gives that liberally. Well, the pursuit of wisdom comes with the fear of the Lord. And remember, we define the fear of the Lord as simply factoring God into every single circumstance and part of life. He is the center of every decision made. Not to be irreverent, but the, the what would Jesus do that's been overused is for the believer really a very valid pursuit. What would the Lord think of this? What is God's opinion of this? And we factor the Lord in, and that is living in the fear of God. Uh, See, we can count on God's promises being sure and certain because there is no lack of wisdom and foresight in God who made those promises. And so you take what promise of God you want in the scripture. You know, me as a parent, I can promise my child, you know, on Tuesday, I promise to buy you an ice cream cone. Well, I wake up Tuesday with the worst man flu I've ever had, right? And I, I'm too sick to go anywhere. I can't, I can't take you to get your ice cream cone. And, the, you know, you broke your promise. Well, I didn't know I was going to wake up on Tuesday with the flu. You know, I, I don't have the foresight to understand all that. But yet God never makes a promise that he cannot keep. His wisdom does not allow it. Um, D, some foolishly believe that the great advances in human knowledge, psychology, etc., uh, have made the wisdom of Scripture somewhat out of date. Uh, we and our family, just the other day, I don't remember how it came up, but we were talking about some things with evolution, etc., and uh, one of the things came up called the gap theory. Has Anybody ever heard of the gap theory? Anybody know what this is? So the gap theory is that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then there was a big, long gap before God said, let there be light. And there was all this millions, billions, however, just tons and tons of years. Well, the gap theory gained a pretty good measure of popularity after the writings of Charles Darwin and the really the explosion on the scene of the theory of evolution and uh, Christians scramble to try to answer science well you know science and this carbon dating it says this thing's a million years old I read my Bible and it's only six thousand well how where can we get the extra time oh well let's let's put a bunch of time right here and so they're they're not di- denying creation they're just saying God created all this and then day one didn't start until like after this long gap, so that's that's the gap theory. Well, there's no need for that. We talk about the gap theory uh, and, and explain some of that in another time. But we don't have to accommodate the scriptures to what so-called scientists or psychologists or environmentalists or whatever else want to try to communicate. We take the scriptures simply at face value. You take the face value reading of Genesis one and you. You come to the end of it, and you're, you're into six days, the seventh day God rested. We don't have to buy into an accommodation to science. God, in wisdom, has given us the Scriptures, and He has, in wisdom, communicated. And He's given us, by His Spirit, wisdom to understand. Um, well, I'll let you read E. Um, and then we'll look at F. We'll close here. We're out of time here, but uh, we ought to pray and ask the Lord for this wisdom and for us to trust in that wisdom of God. Uh, He is our wise heavenly Father, and I repeat what I've said, always doing the very best things in the very best way. So let's close in prayer here. And prepare for the service here. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you today for your word and for what you've communicated to us in your word about yourself. And we pray that you would help us to trust you. We pray that you would calm our hearts when we're so tempted to be anxious about the things around us and simply trust that you are doing the best thing for us and that your wisdom will prevail. And I pray that you would calm our hearts to to believe these truths. We pray for Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches in a few moments. We pray that you would fill him with your spirit for the word that you have for us today. We thank you for these studies through the book of Romans, and we pray that you'll continue to bless them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.